What a blessing it is to worship together and to gather in the Word of God, in the Spirit of the Lord. We're in a series uh, in the book of Ezra, and uh, I've called it uh, Building Back Boulder. It's ringing a little bit around around me, so I'll just uh, let you know that back there. Uh, and we have been uh, studying about the return from exile, uh, this amazing time in history when first 50,000 and then another 5,000, there's still more to come, but we, we're seeing the waves of return. What an exciting time it must have been. It didn't all happen at once, but here they were coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to Judea, coming back to the place where they were supposed to be, coming home, coming to the place, uh, to the place that they always had been intended to be. Uh, as the Lord had intended for them to be. And we've been learning about the parts of that return, about rebuilding the temple and then restoring the word. And Ezra, when he comes, it's a little further along, but when Ezra comes, uh, it's all about uh, restoring the word and a a response to the word. And we're going to begin to see that more and more. Uh, And then rebuilding the walls is what we're going to see uh, in the next uh, section in Nehemiah. We're not quite to Nehemiah yet. So all of this was setting the stage for a time of revival. A lot of times people don't realize it, but this book is really a book of revival. Probably one of, if not the greatest moment of revival in biblical history. I mean, it would be right up there in Old Testament terms with the day of Pentecost. Uh, It's huge what happens, and it begins to happen here at the end of the book of Ezra. So I'm going to read just a few verses um, in Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Um, And I have the page number up there. It may not be the page in your Bible, but that's the page number in our worship Bibles. We used to do this all the time. And I want to encourage you, if you do not own a Bible, please change that today. Uh, We would love for you to have a Bible and take one of those pew Bibles, one of those uh, worship center Bibles home with you and begin to study God's word uh, and begin to mark in your Bible and begin to make it your own. So we're in Ezra chapter 9, beginning verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites... For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this. I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled 
Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. And I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Now let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we, we need to know what was happening here. Uh, we see this this stunning sort of response and we need to know what was happening and how we can apply this and, and, and apply the truths that we find here in this part of your word to our own lives and to our own time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So the second group uh, had... A magnificent arrival in Jerusalem. We talked about that last weekend. How how they began at the place called Ahava. How they they sensed the protection and the covering and and the safety of God. You know, you're only safe if you're in God. Amen. And so and they were in God. They made this journey. They made this travel. Uh, they they didn't have anything bad happen to them. They got there. They had. The second accounting, they counted everything, all the treasures that had been sent with them, and everything was there, everything was good, and then they had this uh, great time of, of worship together. It says uh, at the very end of chapter 8, at that time those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, that's everybody, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, all the tribes of Israel, 96 rams, uh, 77 lambs, uh, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. So they had this great time of worship. That's where we ended last week. That was the end of, of chapter 8. And suddenly we see that Ezra was very upset. And it was this stunning sort of moment. Something that he heard uh, had disturbed him greatly, to say the least. And Ezra was the most admired leader in all of Israel. Uh, it, it was a, a, a stunning sort of thing to see him that way. He was second only to Moses in terms of the esteem that he had before the people. And the scripture says that Ezra wept before the Lord and tore his clothing. He pulled hair out of his head and his beard. I mean, that's really upset. I wouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> it sounds painful, if nothing else. Uh, and those watching were trembling because uh, they actually knew the problem. They knew what he had seen and what he had heard and what was going on. And maybe they were even sort of dreading this moment when it would be told to him uh, how things had really degraded there over those years. Ezra had surveyed the state of God's people. And over those 80 years, it wasn't just something that happened overnight. It was over a period of time. We know that's how things happen. It's over a period of time. Uh, over those 80 years, they had, you know, we had seen them. They had faithfully returned to Jerusalem. They had experienced the faithfulness of God, similar to the Exodus. It's really called the second Exodus. 
And they, they had uh, rebuilt and dedicated the temple. Uh, it was just this marvelous season. They had reestablished the rituals of worship and the sacrifices. So what was the problem exactly? What was so grievous? And if we put a name on it, it would be the problem of faithlessness. It's a word that doesn't really even roll off the tongue very well. We think of faithfulness, but faithlessness is the description here among the returned exiles that had been living in Israel. In that period of time, they had come to look more and more like the pagan world around them than like the people of God. They, they had come to look more like the, the landscape of, of the culture than they did uh, the, the truth of God, uh, the Torah of God, the things that, uh, that they had been taught, that they were coming back to center upon. And so they, they got to this place where really, if we're honest about it, they were going through the motions of the appointed feasts and the sacrifices. We're doing all the things. We're, we're observing a Shabbat and all that. But at home... A Jewish family could be easily mistaken for a pagan family because you didn't see much difference over that period of time. The faithlessness was, was related to marriage. And, and the phrase intermarriage is probably, if you look in your Bible, it'll often talk about intermarriage. That word isn't exactly in the Hebrew, but it is talking about a type of intermarriage. But that phrase, it's commonly used, and we don't want to misunderstand it. Uh, the issue was not racial, and it was not even ethnic. That was not the thing that was so disturbing. The term foreign wives is used in chapter 10. The rest of, of the book of Ezra is going to be dealing with this. And this, the term foreign wives can better be translated pagan wives, so it wasn't that they were foreign even, it was that they were pagan. They were not God worshipers. They were not focused on the way or on the word of God. The people and the leaders and the priests had not separated themselves from the abominations of the people of the land. And that's a, a phrase that we hear more, more and more on, the people of the land. We want to understand that because even in the time of Jesus there's talk about the people of the land Jesus reached out to the people of the land but you don't want to become the people of the land and, and so these leaders even had begun to have these abominations well what is that the word abomination in Hebrew is toyeba say that with me toyeba and, and it means abhorrent <laughs> that's a strong word practices idolatry disgusting moral practices. And so that's what was going on in, in the mix, in the homes, in Judaism. It was a dilution of everything that God had, had set out to do. See, we have to go back and realize from Genesis chapter 12 on, from the call of Abram to come out and to start to form this nation, uh, the plan of God was to call the Jewish people out of paganism to be different. And, and we, we even see that Abram, his, he was raised in a pagan home. His father made idols, sold idols. Abram, <laughs> but God said, no, I want you to come and do something different. I'm going to make a nation out of you that's going to be different. And there were these specific things. 
How were they going to be different? They, they worshiped one God, not many. Uh, and, and everywhere else, they had a whole bunch of gods. They had a God for everything you could name, for the wind and the sun and every little thing. They had all these gods and little idols and stuff like that. Judaism is the first response that says, no, there's one God. There's one creator of heaven and earth. And this is the beginning of what we call monotheism, that nobody else had it. Nobody else had done that. They didn't have idols and graven images. Uh, Pastor Ann likes to call them statue gods. Uh, I think that's a good way to phrase it. They reverenced the name of God. They, God was so valuable that they said, we're not, even, we're not going to even abuse your name or, or lightly use your name. We're not gonna talk, it's not about just cursing in some way. We're not going to lightly use the name of God. And, and these are, are the ways that they were to be different. They observed a Sabbath of rest uh, from work on the seventh day. And, and that was really radical because people looked at them. They, there's history that says people looked at the Jewish people and said they're lazy because they only work six days of the week. And they say it's for their God. And yet they seem to have plenty <laughs> Working just six days of the week and taking a day to honor God and to rest before God. These were the differences. And the differences sometimes had a, a, a negative rub on people in, in that kind of way. They honored their mother and their father uh, within the family uh, in ways that, that others did not. They valued human life as sacred. They did not take innocent life. They did not kill babies. They did not kill people. They did not murder these are things that they, they would not do. They did not do. They refrained from sexual relations outside of marriage. And, and marriage, biblical definition is uh, between one man and one woman. And outside of that, sexuality doesn't have an expression that is correct, that, that is right before God. They didn't steal. and They didn't bear false witness. They didn't tell lies. And they didn't even covet. They didn't, uh, you know, just hanker after or, or desire the things that other people have. I want that thing that, you, that this other person has. Because that can lead to problems. And basically it doesn't trust God that God has, has given us enough. Now, if, if you didn't realize it as I was going through those differences, that's the core of the Ten Commandments. And that was the main thing. The Torah is uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, is the law of God. And it was distinct. I know there's a code of Hammurabi that had some similarities, but th this was new. This was radical to say, to mark Jewish people, the people of God, to mark us as different. We're different from the world around us. And, and that was what Ezra was hoping to see when he arrived. There's a few other things that Jewish people uh, do that are peculiar. They're, you could call them the odd practices. They, they gave their first fruits. They gave 10% of their crops and their money to the Lord. They called it a tithe. That, that, nobody else. They said, why are you doing that? <laughs> you're never going to get ahead if you keep giving money to God. They would say, well, you're never going to get ahead if you don't. <laughs> if you don't honor God. They adhered to the, the code of, of uh, honoring God and loving neighbors, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
And they ate only clean animals according to the rules. It's called the kashrut or the kosher laws. And we find out later that a lot of those are just really healthy ways to eat. Uh, avoiding things that are, that are not healthy. At a certain time of year, they would not eat anything with yeast in it. There was a purpose in that. And all these things, that they marked them as different. And one of those was also that they did not marry or give a child in marriage outside of the faith. That was the big deal. And that's the big deal here in these last couple of chapters in Ezra. Why ban marriage outside of the faith? The reason is because home is where it all happens. Home is where it happens. This is the way that faith is passed down, is in family. Uh, To talk about these things within the family is so very important. Deuteronomy 6 says it very specifically. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. I want these to be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Okay, And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise in our coming, in our going. We're to talk about these things. This is the way that faith is transmitted, the way that faith is is committed to the next generation. Passing on the faith was built around questions and answers within the family. Uh, and we find it all, all through the scripture. There, were, there would be questions that would be asked. Papa, why does mama clean the yeast out of the house in the spring? Why, why do we do that for this, this one special feast? Well, it's to remind us of when our people had to flee in haste. And we didn't have time for the bread to rise. And so it reminds us of that. And there's another reason too. And that is that that yeast, you know how it it goes through a whole loaf. It's not bad in itself, but it reminds us of the way sin can work its way all the way through us. So we clean it out. We clean it out of our house, out of our kitchen, out of every corner. and, And so we don't have any in the house. And it reminds us of how we need to clean sin out of our lives. Wow, what a lesson, year after year. Why, why, Papa, does Mama clean? Mama, why do we build a tabernacle outside in the fall? What, what is that about? Well, oh, honey, it's to remind us of when our people had to depend upon God alone, God only in the desert. And it reminds us when we were traveling in the desert. And so we have a feast about that. It's called Feast of Tabernacles. That's what we're doing uh, at that time. Papa, why is this night different from all other nights? That's, that's the big question at the beginning of the Seder. And, and there's a lot of answer to that that goes on and on. But, but the big answer is before this night, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Pow! We were slaves and we're not anymore. We're free. This night, we are free men and women. We are a free family because our God brought us forth out of bondage. Praise God. And so it's in question and answer. This is how, and and see the problem is that these will be left behind. These are the practices taught in the family so that we never forget the faithfulness of God. See, intermarriage was not banned. I mean, you go all through Judaism and Jewish people could marry people who were not Jewish if 
those people converted and were instructed in the ways of Jewish people. In fact, they had a mikvah baptism that was part of that, uh, of that commitment, that recommitment. And so people could do that. But bringing an unconverted people, an unconverted pagan wife into the family, it disrupts the plan of God, what God has in mind uh, to pass on the faith. So what do you do about it? I mean, this is really a crisis sort of a moment. How do, this is a big question, how do we reverse a widespread sin? How do we reverse sin that, that has become so deeply embedded in the way people do things? 80 years, this is, for a lot of those 80 years, has been going on. And just because everybody's doing it does not mean that God will approve. If we say, well, we're not as bad as other people. No, that, that's not how God looks at things. Well, God, everybody else was, no, that, God doesn't want to hear that. How are we being different in the culture that we're in? And this was the big question. And we see the beginning of what is the Ezra revival uh, as this begins to change. And, and it's dramatic. In chapter 10, there's this big time of confession that takes place. Some of the leaders, some were not very upset by this, but you would think. But some got up and, and in essence, in, in chapter 10, verse 2, it says, We have broken faith. That's called confession. We've broken faith with our God and have married from the people of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And so they're seeking a, a, a resolution for all of this. The sin of faithlessness was to marry an unbeliever who would teach the children idolatry and the ways of foreign gods. But there was hope for Israel in spite of this. And the answer is repentance. It's that word we, we talk about sometimes. Sometimes we'd rather not. The solution here, the repentance here was radical. And radical, as you probably know, when we talk about that medically, it means really, really major. A radical surgery is a major, as major a surgery as there is. They determined to put away or divorce their foreign wives and children. Now, many preachers won't even teach on this. <laughs> uh, they, they would prefer, they would say, this, this is so painful and difficult to even think about. We'd rather go on to the, the next part. Nehemiah, Nehemiah is exciting. We're going to build the walls. And we're going to be all part of it. And all the families are going to be part of building the walls and building protection. And Nehemiah is really cool. We're going to get there. <laughs> but the revival begins back in Ezra. And it's in this major radical thing that they're dealing with. When we read it, it sounds terribly cruel and inhumane. To take the foreign wives and their children and put them out. Well, you know, it just sounds very, very awful. And also, it causes us uh, to struggle uh, how do we reconcile that with uh, the words of Malachi? Because now they didn't have Malachi. <laughs> they couldn't flip ahead. Uh, but, but in Malachi, it, it, I hate divorce, <laughs> says the Lord. 
God of Israel. We've heard that before. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. He calls divorce a breaking of faith. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. That's a painful passage of scripture. But, but it makes it really clear that God does not desire the violence that happens. Sometimes divorce happens. We know that. But it's a violent thing. It's a hurtful thing when it does. So we almost see two different uh, things at, at tension here. Now, a lot of scholars look at this. A lot, a lot of interpreters look at this and suggest that the process was probably not as harsh as it sounds. Um, Each family situation, we learn, is reviewed individually by the key leaders selected by Ezra. It's it's later in chapter 10. They talk about each situation. I'm really glad to read that, that it wasn't just, okay, all of you foreign wives, go to the desert. Hope you do well. That's not what happened. Uh, The foreign people had, had always been welcomed into the Jewish faith by way of conversion. And some think that this was an opportunity, a revival opportunity for the pagan wives uh, to convert and to begin to study the word of God, to begin to study the Torah, the, the law. But more than anything else, this begins a dramatic revival where they really do some soul searching, some looking inward. If we had to say, well, what is revival? I looked around for definitions, and I found this one uh, that I really like a lot. Revival is a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. So a revival is always personal. Uh, you know, we don't pray for revival over there. <laughs> we pray for revival right here. It always starts right here. Now, it may be a lot of people all at once. And there's this huge thing that happens. They commit themselves to the word of God. They commit themselves to the worship of God. Things are are amazingly renewed. Those who study revival find certain elements that are always part of revival. Uh, That there's a a renewed love of God, a resurfacing of, of the love for God and appreciation of God's holiness, not, not as an imposing thing, but the wonder of God's holiness and a passion for his word and for his church, an opening of spiritual eyes, a reinvigoration uh, that deepens the faith. So we see things in a different way. We see people in a different way. We see the, with the eyes and the heart of God, a, a, a break away from the world. Revival breaks the charm and the power of the world that blinds us so many times. And, and, and it, it, a revival generates both the will and the power to live in the world, but not of the world. We talk about that, but this is where it happens. New beginnings. Revival usually has a sense of, of a fresh start and a clean slate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start brand new with, with God. Uh, a conviction of sin is always a part of revival. If we say, I'm praying for revival, we're saying, I'm praying for conviction of sin. And not out there, right here. And then repentance. 
turning away from compromise and the way of the world toward God. And, and we see all those things in the Ezra revival. We, they're all there. And so I, I called this message, Finding Your Way Home, because that is the essence of what revival is about. Uh, repentance, uh, we've studied the word before, metanoia or metanoeo. Uh, it means to change one's mind and purpose as a result of knowledge. You, you learn something, you go, wow, I was wrong. <laughs> I was going the wrong way. And repentance always involves remembering where I was supposed to be and turning around to go there. That's what's happening in the book of Ezra. And so repentance is always going to be a part of a journey home. True repentance is more than just an emotional sort of response. Sometimes we think of it that way. But it really is a time where we ask this question, is there any difference between me and the world? You know, if, if Jesus came in, would he have to ask me, are you a believer? Just, just looking? Or, or if he came into uh, the churches of America, would he say, no, is this a Christian church? Because you look an awful lot like the world right now. How are we different? Are there the differences there? Do people see that there's new life in Christ? Or, or are we just like the world? So I just want to give you some thoughts, scriptural thoughts about how do you find your way home? How do we find that path? And the first is to invite the Lord to examine you. It's like going to the doctor. Lord, I need, I need the test. <laughs> I need the exam. I need to know. Psalm 139 says... Search me, O God, and know my heart. We pray that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Why don't we read that out loud together? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. It's that searching. Jeremiah 17 says, I... The Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Romans 8, 27 says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The second thing would be then to pursue the truth of his word as it concerns anything that the Lord brings to mind. Because the Lord will bring things maybe we had not thought about. Some of the, everybody's doing those things, sort of things. Hebrews 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of heart, of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all other things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we need the word of God in order to uh, understand the, the differences, in order to separate the differences. The third is to confess every sin. Confess, confession, we often say, is agreeing with God. Agreeing with God. You've said this is sin, so I'm going to agree with you this is sin. Psalm 51 is the great 
confession of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Why don't we read this out loud together? It's such a great confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And the good news that we find, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then finally is to repent. We confess, but we have to turn away. If we confess and we receive forgiveness, but we keep on, then we're, we're not moving in the, we're not getting home. Turn away from the world and instead toward home. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Proverbs 28 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them, that's the important part, forsakes them, turns away from them, will obtain mercy. You know, really, this is the first sermon, the first message of Jesus. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, very early, I mean, the very first things that we begin to hear from Jesus, from his mouth and from his heart, he began to preach saying, repent, turn toward home. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And God is so very faithful. This is what he desires. This is what he desires in your life and mine. It's what he desires in his church. It's what he desires in this world, in our nation. Joel chapter 2 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So my question is, are you ready to return home? Are you ready to go home? You may be joining us by uh, the live stream, or you may be here in the house and you may be realizing, I need to go home. So I invite you to pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come gratified that you reach out to us in your word and by your spirit to call us, to draw us, to call us home. And God, we pray that, that we might take to heart the things that are in your word. We invite you to examine us. Search us and know our hearts. Try our thoughts. Lord, show us by your word. Divide the things, uh, the thoughts and intentions. Lord, sometimes I can't tell if it's me or you. And so divide those things by the word of God so that I'll know what is right. Lord, I, I confess to you. We confess before you our great need. As sinners, we need you. Have mercy on us.
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. God, we pray that you would blot out our transgressions and wash us, cleanse us. And we know that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we pray that you might draw us to that place where we are are moving more and more every